In today's episode, I am going to lament about visions of the future in science fiction and how they're so gloomy these days. And I will tell you a diversion about the Temple of the Pig. Hello and welcome to The Bantman. Today's episode is called Futures. We are Naveen and Rishi, just two guys talking about things that interest us, mostly to amuse one another and occasionally to learn something. These will be freewheeling conversations about things that interest and fascinate us. Each of us draws on our hobbies and interests and the other takes more of a curious person role. We take turns being Socrates and Plato if you want to be highfalutin about it. Rishi, science fiction is a mutual interest, so it was only a matter of time before this episode <laughs> came about. You know. Absolutely. So, all right. So, so let's, let's get into it, Naveen. What I want to talk about today is some of my favorite science fiction and a fundamental reason why some of it is my favorite, which is that it isn't a gloomy vision for humanity's future, right? So we are, I suppose, irrevocably the generation that grew up watching The Matrix or watched The Matrix in our formative years. We are informed by cyberpunk. We are informed by steampunk. We are informed by all this gritty stuff that has been the trend both in literature as well as in television and movies you know the Blade Runner future to the Terminator future or alternate futures as the case may be. The bottom line is a lot of science fiction today kind of imagines a dystopian future and that was even before we got to the young adult Hunger Games uh, Maze Runner kind of uh, stuff. So I want to kind of harken back and remind the whippersnappers listening of some of the gloriously optimistic uh, science fiction. And, and we can sort of talk a little bit about some what is now sadly lesser known science fiction, as well as remind people about the breathless, fascinated nature of science fiction as it was. So I'm, I'm going to kick off by talking about the granddaddy of science fiction or one of the granddaddies of science fiction um, Isaac Asimov and what I consider to be his masterwork which is the Foundation Trilogy. Have you read this? Yeah, I must admit I've seen it, I've heard a lot about it but I've never right. read it. Right. So uh, does that make me a whippersnapper? I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. No, but uh, you know, it's, it's one of those quiet classics that has a cult following. I know there have been a few attempts to make it into a movie. There have been attempts to make it into a television series, most recently by Apple TV. Uh, that may or may not happen going forward. But it's difficult because it is a very brainy kind of set of books. And uh, even Isaac Asimov himself admitted that it is very sedate and nothing happens. There's just pages upon pages of dialogue. But it's, it's a fascinating vision for the future. So, so let me set it up for you, right? And since you haven't read this, and no doubt a lot of our listeners wouldn't have heard of it, I'm trying to avoid spoilers. So I'll give you the basic framework, but then we'll, we'll talk about it in more general terms. Awesome. So um, this is set in a far future where humanity has grown into the galactic empire. It rules the Milky Way. And Isaac Asimov actually happened upon this idea because he had recently read or was reading The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbons. And he didn't have an idea, so he just came up with something in the drive to the editor meeting. So uh, what he thought of was, 
the way the roman empire reached its decline and it took a good sort of 600 years to die depending on how you think about it what if the galactic empire was also coming into decline except enter the sort of series's uber protagonist hari selden who is a mathematician and a historian and he invents a new science that he calls psychohistory so the the concept behind psychohistory is it is a predictive statistical science that can predict how large populations of people will behave and what history will emerge from that so it's like reading the tea leaves on a galactic scale with maths oh wow that's that's complex yeah so you know sort of tying into our second episode where we talked about histories this assumes that there is an objectively knowable history that can then be factored and you can use some equations to predict where it's going long story short hari selden realizes the galactic empire is toast it's going to collapse and we are going to reach a point where humanity is going to enter 10000 years of a dark age unless using psychohistory he kind of sets things up in a certain way such that while the dark age will still happen it will be reduced from the 10000 years to sort of a thousand years right so he goes about and uh, he goes to the then galactic emperor and says uh, you know he's actually put on trial very socrates on trial style um where he says look i i need funds i need people to put together an encyclopedia galactica which will be like the authoritative history of the galaxy i'm going to use the data in it to project the future and i'm going to set up a team of psychohistorians to mathematically change the course of events such that the dark ages are reduced from 10000 to 1000 oh wow okay that sounds like a recipe for disaster well i mean you know yes and no so remember this is optimistic fiction right so so i ah, i like where okay. you're going because your your first reaction is oh shoot they're going to you know mess it up so he says i'm going to set up a foundation of psychohistorians to make sure that the dark ages are 1000 years and not 10000 years which is the best case outcome and he never tells anybody where the foundation is because he realizes that knowing what the foundation is knowing where it is will only mean that the emperor will try to track it down and destroy it etc so he says the foundation is at star's end or something like that right now the the thing is this isn't really your classic trilogy of novels uh, isaac asimov wrote it as eight short stories of vignettes which were then later compiled into a uh, trilogy of novels uh, there are prequels there are sequels that he wrote 40 years later we're not going to go into them so foundation is sort of the story of how the foundation was set up and it is the story of how the foundation revealed itself as the galactic empire fell the foundation was sort of it rose as the great last hope for humanity The second book in the series which is you know the first book is four stories collected together the second book is i believe another two or three stories collected together is called foundation and empire and it's all about how the foundation's plan has been upset because there is something that has happened that hari selden could not predict now remember psychohistory is all about statistical prediction it does mm-hmm. not govern how individuals work right. the the thing that hari selden missed is a mutant was born he calls himself the mule and the mule has a superpower he can adjust people's emotions and he's a telepath who can manipulate people and so what the mule has started to do is single-handedly started to disrupt hari selden's plan because he wants to be emperor and he wants to be emperor in perpetuity 
But of course, his obsession is the rumor that not only did Hari Seldon set up the foundation, which he is on the verge of defeating anyway, because he's got a huge armada in space and, you know, he's gone to war with the foundation. But the rumor that Hari Seldon secretly also set up a second foundation as a backstop and a sort of security measure for exactly this kind of an, an event. And so that book is all about how the mule, a mutant, an aberration in the plan, is trying to find the second foundation. And ultimately, he kind of sort of gets defeated, or at least discouraged, and he goes away and he, he remains a minor king, and the plan plods on, with the first foundation almost completely destroyed. And then we come to the third book, which is called Second Foundation, where the second foundation is real, reveals itself, and you know I'm, I'm not going to say any more about that book because that would be to spoil it. Uh, suffice it to say, uh, you know, the transition from foundation and empire to second foundation is one of my favorite transitions in science fiction. So definitely worth reading this, right? Here's, here's the thing. Um, Asimov wrote this set of stories or this trilogy of novels, depending on how you want to look at it, in the 19... 40 to 50 time range. He was writing it from 1942 to 1950. Remember, this was the latter half of the Second World War, the uh, emerging space race and, you know, the, the fact of nuclear uh, weapons. But it was fundamentally an optimistic time. The Cold War hadn't quite kicked off just yet. And for almost 30 years, Asimov kind of let the foundation, Foundation and Empire and Second Foundation Trilogy be. He was a prolific writer. He went on to writing other things. And then in the 1980s, he was coaxed back into writing more foundation novels. So he wrote two prequels and two sequels to it, which I haven't read, so I can't really talk about too much. But what fascinates me about the series is the determinism in it, almost. Because you're right, you know, your first instinct is, oh, a human being is pretending to understand the course of history and wanting to change it. But actually, everything goes according to plan. And it goes according to plan because the human being in question is a wise scientist who has then uh, created a backstop. He's created a safety net in the second foundation, which kind of makes sure that his vision is ultimately fulfilled. This is rare in science fiction, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, any, any uh, genius is always evil, right? But here it seems to be a benevolent genius. Right. And also, you know, of late, science fiction has become so very obsessed with the butterfly effect and, and things of that sort. Uh, you know, anything and everything that can go wrong will go wrong. Uh, it, it's really disturbing to me. But I, I suppose all fiction is a function of its time. And, uh, you know, this was at a time when American can-doism, oh, we will beat the Soviet Union, so what if they've launched Sputnik? Oh, we will, you know, beat the Germans in World War II. That was ascendant, and that translates into a very positive vision of the future, sort of the Hanna-Barbera Jetsons future, but done more intelligently. Anyway, so, you know, for me, I know there's a cult following, and even if you haven't read it, you've probably heard about it if you're a fan of science fiction, as you said, right. Naveen. It's something that I wanted to highlight because it is such an optimistic vision of the future. So now that's part one today. We'll cover another very optimistic piece of fiction in the next segment. But before that, let's take a short break. We'll be back after the break. We are back 
Uh, so Rishi, uh, two things struck me about uh, the Foundation series. Okay. Um, number one, that uh, genius, that a person who's uh, who knows and who thinks so deeply about humanity hmm. um, manages to keep himself from going over to the dark side, so to speak, <laughs> itself, right. especially right. given the volume of work dedicated to um, sending such people over the edge. Right. Um, that just that itself, just the creation of that character was incredibly optimistic to me. Right. And the second is that a plan that mm. actually works. <laughs> and we know this, right? The yeah. simplest plans we make to yeah. record an episode or to go watch a movie runs into so many problems. True. And then there is this incredibly complex thing that lasts, you know, so many years and so many generations. And then that such a plan can work. Just the premise that a complicated plan can work itself seems to be optimistic to me. So just those two things alone, yeah, just a combination, yeah. even without reading the work or going deeper into any detail. Absolutely. Um, just as that screams optimism to me. No, so, I mean, look, there's two things to rebut. Number one, Hari Seldon's plan comes about when he's already middle-aged and he knows it's going to outlive him. It's his legacy. So going over to the dark side and becoming emperor himself, etc., doesn't occur to him because he's at the end of his natural life. In fact, the foundation kicks off after he dies. The second thing is, you're right, you know, that optimism is is exactly what is missing. And remember, this was the generation that pulled off the D-Day landings. This was the generation that had aspirations to launch satellites and reach the moon and invent nuclear weapons. So, you know, like I said, it's it, that can-do thing where they thought, throw enough money at it and any problem is insurmountable. Right, right. Uh, so oh, oh, absolutely. It does uh, It does reflect the optimism of the age. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yep. And, and so let's use that as a segue point into the next piece of fiction that I want to talk about, which is Star Trek. Ooh. Right? Which now, I this know, one I watched. Right. And, and you're a big, <laughs> big fan of. So, big fan. you know, yes. across media, I think whether you're talking about the original series in 66 to 69 or the very latest iteration, which is Star Trek Picard, which is airing now, and I've watched two episodes of. Star Trek has always been a consistently optimistic vision of the future. I mean, it, it came out in 66 to 69, the original series which was just after the height of the Cold War, uh, sort of seven years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. And they put Chekhov on the bridge of the USS Enterprise. Right? Think about that for a second. This is when, again, kids are doing duck and cover drills in school because the communist menace is coming to kill you. And you've got some Russian guy with an accent serving on the bridge of your fantasy spacecraft. Yeah, that must have been quite a bold move, actually. Yeah, yeah. They boldly went where no man had gone before. <laughs> Sorry. It, it was, you lined it up so perfectly. Oh, yeah, that was set it. up perfectly, yes. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, from, from my perspective, Star Trek was always that utopian society where, you know, nobody talks about money except in later series, the Ferengi, maybe. Nobody's concerned about earning a living. Everybody works because... It's their calling. This starship has a crew where nobody is really bad. Nobody is evil. Nobody actively works against the goals of the family group, so to speak. You know, it's, it's always the red shirts that die and it's always the guest stars that are the villains. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. whether, and, and it lasted for a really long time, right? So, obviously, there was the original series right, from right. 66 to 69, which had William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. Mm -hmm. 
There was an animated series later that it's best not to talk about. Then came the movies. Then came Star Trek: The Next Generation with my captain, my favorite captain, uh, Jean-Luc Picard, played by Sir Patrick Stewart. And right. throughout, there were a few things that always stood out to me, regardless of which specific iteration of Star Trek you're looking at, until the very recent ones. So. One was this moneyless future where everybody is working for the common good. The second was the prime directive, which was, uh, you know, yes, you've got this exploratory mission. Um, you know, the USS Enterprise seeks out new life and new civilization. But while they're doing that, uh, they have this directive to never subjugate uh, new species and populations that they find. Uh, they have some rules about who to show their technology to even. And there's obviously uh, enough episodes where they get mistaken for gods, etc. But through it all, there is never a suggestion that humanity is somehow corrupt. The United Federation of Planets is ultimately always treated as a benevolent thing, right? And if you think about the origins of this show, which was uh, pitched by Gene Roddenberry, its creator, as basically the Oregon Trail, but in space. Uh, mm -hmm. It, it yep. was sort of a manifestation of the American concept of manifest destiny, where the mission for humanity was to spread out, but to spread out benevolently. And w what do you think? Do you think Star Trek is that positive vision still? And I'm, I'm conscious that's a loaded question. <laughs> no, there's a couple of things which we I'm, I'm sure we need to kind of acknowledge as well. Like if you look at the original series, um, there is a very, uh, uh, it's very easy to see for us now, uh, looking back mm. um, rather, uh, to see the whole uh, reflection of, you know, the white man's burden during colonization, mm. kind of yep. being, uh, uh, just being translated into different terms. Uh, but then again, I'm guessing we need to also place it in uh, its context. Yeah. Uh, like the whole act of putting Chekhov on the bridge, like you said, is kind of, kind of trying to write it from the perspective of those days right, where you're trying right. to be as egalitarian as you possibly can while still trying to be this thing where you put yourself on a pedestal like as the human race. Mm. Um, but the overall positivity of it um, showing a time when it's uh, human beings evolve into a utopia rather than yeah. a dystopia. Yeah. Uh, that kind of holds true, and I think that that shines through all the uh, ones. Yeah. Uh, even my favorites, which is the which is uh, Discovery, which is uh, right. uh, the latest one, and that one was uh, I, I really like that they set it before the original series. Right, right. Then when you place all of those things um, in context, and then you look at the original series, it's like okay, you can forgive these things. Those were just um, what would you say? errors in execution <laughs> rather than uh, right. uh, details that should be bothered too much about. Right. Well, I mean, I, I, I think Star Trek is one of those universes that has unfortunately played with time a bit too much for their own good. So, you know, particularly once you bring in the J.J. Abrams movies and try to put them in continuity with the television lore, <laughs> it's a confusing mess. It is. It absolutely is. But here's, here's uh, this, I mean, a slight diversion, right? I mean, um, Attempting to uh, timeline any author's works um, yeah. is a bit of a headache. True, um, true. And here, this is not an author's works, but it's like a, it's like a body of work of many different uh, people with many different so agendas true. trying to make this. So true. So yeah, I'm guessing uh, I'm I'm okay to live with those imperfections. Yeah, I mean, right? look, you know, we're not we're not really talking about imperfections here because even even the Foundation series, right? So Asimov was one of the first authors to say every novel he'd ever written 
is part of the same extended universe. Right. Um, right. And he, when he did that, he wrote an author's note uh, on one of the foundation sequels saying, look, I know it doesn't all add up and make sense because <laughs> when I originally wrote it, it wasn't meant to. But now right. I'm saying it's all, it's all off a piece. It's, it's not continuity errors that I'm worried about so much as when you look at the more modern iterations of Star Trek, Mm-hmm. Uh, starting perhaps uh, with uh, Star Trek Enterprise, which was also a prequel series, mm-hmm. and definitely going into Voyager and Picard and the J.J. Abrams movies. They have done to the United Federation of Planets what has maybe happened in real life to the U.S. government or what is being admitted has happened to the U.S. government now, which is in the J.J. Abrams movies, particularly the second one, which is the worst of the lot, Into Darkness, the Federation is the villain because they are militarizing. Right, right. Significantly. Discovery is all about this. Sure, parallel universes come into play, but again, they are fighting militarists both within the Federation and in the Klingon Empire. And then right. in the latest series, Picard, uh, certainly from the two episodes I've seen, um, which qualify me for a PhD, um, <laughs> it's, it's again very much the idealist, retired loner against what is clearly a system riddled with problems and that saddens me because i thought growing up certainly i thought the whole point of star trek was it is painting a reality that is around the corner the beginnings of uh, the united federation of planets and i just miss that man i i miss that optimism where you could watch science fiction and not go home depressed ready to feel like oh this is all going to crap <laughs> so yeah, I'm guessing it's kind of where you're trying to make it more real to us. Mm. Um, mm. So if you look, especially like the storyline and how things unfold in Discovery, regardless of all the sci-fi hijinks, right. the basic stories are about uh, confrontation within civilizations. Yeah. And uh, it essentially reflects what's happening right now in the world to us. Right. And any of those um, happenings within the story, actually, you can draw clear parallels to what's happening in the real world. Oh, absolutely. So, mm. Which is kind of, you could almost never do that to anything in the original series. For example, you try to make it as uh, outre and bizarre as uh, possible so that you cannot see anything common. True. Right? True. I think it's a different era of storytelling. It's a different approach to this. Mm. Uh, maybe. To cater to more modern tastes. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, you know, maybe I'm being nostalgic and, and I'm being one of those people that complain their childhood was ruined by the new iteration of the thing they like. Um but no, it's it's just that I feel like we could do more, particularly in this day and age. We could do with a positive, optimistic vision for the future and thoughts about how to get there and how that would work, how that utopia would work, than the dystopian, the machines are coming to kill you or you have to uh, volunteer to save your sister because you're fighting for scraps of food kind of a scenario. Um, <laughs> Let, let's let's uh, let's take a quick diversion and then uh, come back to tie it all neatly with a bow and we are going to talk about another piece of fiction that we both dearly love all right naveen you have me really intrigued uh, what's this about the temple of the pig I'm just going to recount uh, an incident from my childhood and uh, I, I keep recalling this one with a lot of fondness because it, it reflects so many things about the uh, surroundings of the place in which I uh, grew up in. Right? right. And a town called Coimbatore. Small town Tamil Nadu uh, in the 1980s. That's the setting, right? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, so near my house, 
um, there used to be this uh, temple um, in in tamil nadu there are a proliferation of temples to right. murugan the tamil god right um, we also had a lot of local temples to uh, the local deities the mother goddesses right and so there was this one such temple very near our house the, the other part that you should know is uh, there were a lot of pigs running around in the neighborhood <laughs> okay right? like um, these were stray pigs they would be all over the place and uh, people generally used to drive them away when they saw them but right. there was enough space for them to proliferate so there was this one day when uh, there was a bunch of people at the temple praying when this rather large sow makes its way oh dear into the temple and then uh, goes round and round and round in circles right okay. like a puppy chasing its tail there was confusion and consternation all around and then people gather around the pig they can't figure out what's happening to it right until someone exclaims that oh the goddess has entered the pig <laughs> right and then from uh, at that moment the pig is transformed from an unclean animal that has strayed into the uh, holy place right. to a, a sacred animal that must Ooh. be protected and venerated and avatar so, yeah like and then the people like they dragged the pig out they washed <laughs> it and then they smeared turmeric all over it and oh then dear. they built a nice house for it right next to the temple with palm fronds and all of that and, wow and uh, word spread like wildfire right like uh, oh there is this uh, pig that has been possessed by the goddess right and then people come from all the surrounding villages and uh, they everyone bring gifts of fruits and vegetables to feed the pig this pig was quite happy with all the attention <laughs> because he didn't have to go looking yeah, for food food be. was just brought to it yeah um but then you know pigs can take only so much of human company then it tried to like run away to be with other pigs but oh. uh, then people would just go promptly capture it and bring it back i mean it was rather easy to see which this pig was because it was smeared with turmeric and, and nothing yeah. else was but pigs are also really intelligent animals so this so was this one so it essentially figured out that during the day people keep watching me right so uh, it just like quietly dug a tunnel under the <laughs> uh, under the back um, part of the house that was built for it so it just used to go out in the nights and come back in the morning so that during the day it was here and happily fed getting and resting getting fed yeah it would go out gallivanting in the nights uh, so that is a realization that was had afterwards and you will know why at the conclusion of the story okay this brought a lot of fame to the temple as well suddenly there were sure. all these new yeah. devotees coming in obviously when they come there they would give money to the temple right. so it was it became a thing and also this this was in a small neighborhood tucked away in one corner right right so traffic jams the roads became <laughs> jammed it it was just became like something big brilliant and this thing went on for a few weeks and then suddenly one morning there was the sow okay and it had given birth to a litter of 12 piglets oof right okay so that's what all the nightly outings were about <laughs> right fornication oh dear <laughs> <laughs> and then and overnight right people decided oh no the goddess has left the pig and then they like <sighs> drove it away and the house was torn down and it was no longer the temple of the pig <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing i i mean on the surface this is a funny story right but there are so many many uh, religious and cultural lessons to be learned from this whole thing <laughs> uh, also the whole optimism of humanity that you know you see a pig with probably yeah it, it, it tends to fray it, it tends <laughs> to fray when stories like this i mean in in my hometown right nothing quite as hilarious but there was this rumor that started up that there are some temple trees that are emitting smoke 
right? <laughs> so every evening, what would happen was these certain trees would apparently right. be smoking without any trace of fire. So it was considered a miracle. And, you know, this is in uh, rural Maharashtra near where I grew up. Right. Uh, people would come from far and wide to see that, etc. And my father was connected to or one of the anti-superstition movement folks. Mm-hmm. Visited the temple and realized it was a swarm of insects. <laughs> you know, those smoke. those teeny <laughs> tiny, they're called chilter right. in uh, uh-huh. Marathi. They are right, these right. little fly-like things that come and sit on your banana when you're least mm-hmm. expecting it. Right, right. They were swarming around those trees at dusk because, I don't know, for whatever reason, it was their mating season or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was like the, the Ganesha drinking milk thingy. Uh, right, Google it, right. Google it, folks. But yeah, right. just another <laughs> daft story in the annals of Indian superstition. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So that, I guess, was like a two-for-one diversion with both of us talking about these things. There you go. Um, So let's get back after a short break into the final part of your segment. Thank you for giving us a listen. We are the Bantaman, Naveen and Rishi. Do check out our website, bantaman.com. We are available on all your favorite podcasting platforms and would really appreciate a like. Do subscribe if we've managed to intrigue you and please leave a rating and a review or more importantly, your thoughts on anything we've discussed here today. We await your feedback and are happy to take any questions or even ideas for future episodes. Welcome back folks to the podcast and uh, we're in the home stretch now. So Rishi, yep. um, where are we going now? All right. So I feel like, you know, when I'm lamenting the loss of optimism, I should not end on a sour note saying, oh, I'm disappointed by all the fiction that's out there, the Terminators and the Matrices and uh, uh, the Hunger Games of the world. So let's let's talk about a series that I we know. We should not forget Wild Wild West. <sighs> I try so hard to... God, you had to go there. <laughs> <laughs> I'd bring, bring it back, bringing it back. Yeah. So there is a series uh, that has rejuvenated my interest in science fiction uh, recently. It is also the world's richest man's favorite series, which is why we got a season four and are about to get a season five. Woo-hoo! So yeah, I am, of course, talking about The Expanse. Expanse is a series of proposed nine novels written by or written under the uh, pen name James S.A. Corey by two authors. It is again a vision of humanity set in the far future. And I must admit, when, when I started off watching The Expanse, because I saw the series before I started reading the books, and I haven't yet read all the books. It struck me as another example in that gritty, realistic, dystopian vision of the future for humanity. But it has surprised me. So I'm, I'm not going to spoil anything for anybody, as I have hopefully done so far in this episode. Essentially, humanity has spread out through the solar system, and then events transpire that widen that horizon even further. And I know that, uh, you know, for those who've caught up to the latest season where there is a toehold in essentially another galaxy or something, uh, it, it goes even wider for those who've read the books. The, the scope just expands further. So wait, so just this, right? Just, just, just this description. Yeah. Right. 
that puts it out there that that puts it in the optimism zone for me it it does but here's right. here's where i think you know it it's a very clever series for any number of reasons but i think one of the cleverest things that it does for me it doesn't shy away from the ugly part of the future but fundamentally it does show that humanity has expanded beyond its wildest dreams today so yes there are problems where these people that are settled in the asteroid belt uh, between mars and jupiter are called the belters and they are treated as almost third class citizens mined for their resources earth and mars are constantly at each other's throat because mars has been colonized but now they've become independent all all that is fine that is the real politic of this universe right but fundamentally they do not decry the fact that humanity has spread out so there's implications in the series that the earth is kind of a ravaged place now with very few resources etc but the demolition derby of climate change hasn't come to pass you know greta thunberg can be happy with this future um <laughs> <laughs> they, they they've they've said that uh, yes the belters have a problem with civil rights but they're fighting it actively right yeah see that's that's exactly what uh, makes it work for me right because look at the world today right so mm. if you take uh, the parts of the world or uh, the people of the world who uh, are woke or enlightened right, right. um that's those are people at the apex of a pyramid if you will right where the bottommost tiers are made out of the people who still are yet to find humanity or people mm. who have yet to be treated as human every day right so and that's that those are different sides of the same uh, different facets of the same diamond if you will right and that is the human condition right it's only in that that, that state has to be enabled by a whole bunch of people who have yet to reach there right and i think that is why it works a lot the story itself because it's just like an expanding of the human condition you, right. you cannot ignore that bit at all no that that's interesting you know uh, two two things come to mind uh, when you said that there was a there was a book written i don't know sometime in the 70s or something called future shock mm-hmm. by alvin toffler and this was a non fiction book it its premise was that there are there is a uh, small segment of humanity the 1% if you will right that uh, is already living in the future as we understand it so back in the uh, 80s it was the people that could afford the first motorola cell phone they were they were kind of already living the mobile future in a way uh, but it wasn't commonly accessible at all um so it what what you're saying is uh, you know star trek is assuming that that's that future is accessible to everybody instantly but a series like expanse brings a bit more realism into it because yeah there's you know there's these people that are off into the wild wild west no pun intended <laughs> of the expanse uh, universe but then there is still suffering and there is still you know civil rights problems and all the rest of it yeah yeah oh, oh yeah star wars uh, star eve <laughs> that's <laughs> fantasy mate <laughs> <laughs> no star trek um i mean it does not deny it it doesn't acknowledge it either so right. it's not like i mean there could be like a hidden universe of stories where this continuity is uh, described but right. you right. deliberately turn the focus on other things there yeah but so. i i i suppose you know uh, that that brings us to the exam question right in a in a sense which is yes all of all of this is 
entertainment and ultimately it is um you know intended to keep you engaged in a soap opera like proceeding uh, unfolding in front of you where various characters that you've now got involved with uh, reach their eventual fates but the the exam question is what is science fiction for right and and for me science fiction is taking the trends of today taking all the different scientific realities and projecting what might happen in the future and you can do it in one of two ways you can do it positively uh, you can say you know this is the future of technology or you can do it as almost a warning of things to come and it's just that i i feel like we get more of the latter these days than the former i think <laughs> that is also a reflection of the times we live in look mm-hmm. at the news what is uh, reported uh, conflict war that's what is reported um, yeah. pieces never reported true. and so that's kind of reflecting in our tastes in entertainment as well true which is what makes things like the expanse so refreshing right like it is optimistic where the stories might have different lines where yeah. uh, there are very uh, Uh, negative outcomes or uh, motives or motivations yeah the setting is in a largely optimistic future for humanity yeah and and actually you know what something just struck me to to return to a point you had made earlier where in the foundation series hari selden the father of psychohistory resists the temptation of falling to the dark side and becoming a dark lord mm-hmm. the the same can be said of the team of people on board the rosinante in the expanse series right the the guy that is the go between essentially between the proto molecule in in the expanse universe the alien entity and humanity is fundamentally a do gooder uh, you know he will leave no person behind he will not kill unless he has to that that sort of a thing which is again a very optimistic vision that's one of the reasons why you absolutely will fall in love with the crew of the rosinante mm. regardless of who it is every single person there yeah yeah um they always make the hero choice true they always make that when when push comes to shove when the hardest decisions are to be made it is those decisions that they make which kind of put them apart and that's why they are the crew of the rosinante right hmm. right and that kind of um i don't know reaffirms your faith in at least the series <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean you know well i i don't know where it goes because i haven't read all the books in the series and i know it's going to be nine books and it takes some strange left turns uh, but yeah I, i think without reservation i would highly recommend uh, the expanse to any fans of science fiction because it is an entertaining ride and a very very positive vision of the future i i just wish there were more like it out there Absolutely I share the same view. Um you know there's there's one anecdote that I want to close on which is another argument for science fiction. Isaac Asimov is the father of robotics because in one of the books that he later retconned into being part of the foundation universe he wrote what have now come to be accepted as the three laws of robotics. Right. People can google it we'll we'll put some links to it in the description but yes science fiction not only is it a positive vision for humanity's future sometimes it helps the future get here thank you rishi that was quite thought provoking uh-huh. 
one thing that we want to do with this podcast i suppose is to get a conversation going so i'd encourage all our listeners to log into our website you know leave your thoughts and comments and uh, let's get into a chat about it all right see you then Oh, 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 o